This series contains adult language and depictions of graphic violence. Listener discretion is advised. Well, they showed you a statue, told you to pray. They built you a temple and locked you away. Ah, but they never told you the price that you'd pay for things that you might have done. Only the good die young. Carl De Niro had a big decision to make. In October of 1976, Carl was a 20-year-old college dropout, working a dead-end job and living the life of a self-described dope-smoking hippie. And if you're not aware of the term hippie, it relates to an American youth movement that gained worldwide prominence in the late 60s. Beginning on college campuses, members of the hippie movement wrote a wave of counterculture that rejected mainstream American life. In some ways, it was a reaction to the ultra-conservative decade of the 1950s. Boys grew their hair long, women refused to wear bras, free love was preached, and the invention of the birth control pill made it all much less stressful. It was also a quasi-political movement that rose in opposition to the war in Vietnam. Tens of thousands of young Americans were being drafted and forced to fight in a bloody conflict halfway around the world. And many of them didn't make it home. The hippies were peaceful. They staged sit-ins, went to marches, and manifested iconic events like Woodstock. And if you don't know what Woodstock is, please just Google it. A defining characteristic of hippies was drug use, primarily marijuana and LSD. They were about peace and love and understanding and feeling good about everything everywhere all the time. Pollyannish, to be sure, but it marked a crucial time in American history. The hippie movement began to fade with the end of the Vietnam War in 1975 and today is remembered more for the music of the era and funny Halloween costumes of tie-dyed shirts and bell-bottom jeans. But if you were a rebellious college student in the 70s, chances are you were a hippie. Here was Carl De Niro's conundrum. What the hell was this hippie going to do with his life? Something we've all asked at one time or another, probably several times, but this time for Carl was the summer of 1976. As stated, he had dropped out of college and was back living in Queens. He had realized that his time as a student was over. It just wasn't a life he could imagine for a single day more, let alone several years more. He wanted adventure, he wanted to see the world, and he wanted job security. That's right, this dope-smoking hippie decided to join the military. The Air Force, to be exact. Much like David Berkowitz a few years earlier, with the limited prospects that De Niro was facing, the military was a terrific option. But would they accept him? Vietnam was done. The draft was over. And although there is always a need for fresh soldiers in the U.S. military, there was a fear that maybe they could be a little more picky now. Maybe a long-haired hippie would get turned away. Carl found his courage and showed up at the United States Air Force Recruitment Center in Flushing. Flushing's a city in Queens famous for the 1964 World's Fair and the National Tennis Center that hosts the U.S. Open every summer. It turns out that Carl would get the shot of confidence he needed 
as he passed the entrance tests with ease and was afforded a wide array of employment opportunities within the Air Force. He chose to become an aerial photographer, was sent to Fort Greene in Brooklyn, and was sworn in. By the evening of October 22, 1976, he was five days from having to report to Fort Lackland, Texas for boot camp. He hadn't cut his hair yet, he hadn't stopped getting high yet, and his friends had taken him out for one last hurrah as a civilian. Who knows, Carl thought, maybe I'll never see Queens again. Those were the musings of a young man about to embark on a journey whose end was uncertain, a mix of excitement, nostalgia, and fear. Yes, he was a young man, but he was old enough to know that what he was feeling was a good indication that he'd made the right decision. Carl and his friends left the bar they'd been drinking at in favor of a house party that promised a better time. But when they arrived, they were initially disappointed. Low energy, no food, running out of beer. But Carl noticed a young, pretty Queens College student named Rosemary Keenan talking with some friends and decided, what the hell, let me give it one good try. Rosemary was instantly taken by Carl's confidence, his handsome face, and his beautiful, long, dark hair. We're not sure exactly what was said, but we can imagine. Hey, I'm leaving for the military in a few days. I may never see you again. Whatever pickup line Carl used worked. Because soon, he found himself in Rosemary's car, engaged in what he termed a makeout session, while parked on a quiet residential street in Queens. Rosemary was 18, Carl was 20. She was a freshman in college. He was leaving for boot camp. I bring all this up to make a point that in all likelihood, neither one of these kids was probably expecting this makeout session to lead to anything long-term. They were just young and beautiful and having a good time. They had no idea that they were about to be connected to each other and to history for the rest of their lives. Welcome back to The Devil Within, A Season in Hell. You're listening to Episode 3, Only the Good Die Young. Late October in New York gets pretty cold. And by then, the leaves would mostly be off the trees, and the streetlights would be casting dark and eerie shadows into Rosemary's car. But really, none of that would have mattered. Carl and Rosemary were focused on each other. And maybe on the radio. Was it Play That Funky Music by Wild Cherry? Maybe Sarah Smile from Hall & Oates came on to get him in the mood. In all likelihood, though, the smash hit Bohemian Rhapsody, released the previous year but still on the charts, had the great Freddie Mercury serenading the young lovers. Until... Carl would claim that he thought the car had exploded. Rosemary, being the daughter of an NYPD detective, knew when to get the hell out of a bad situation and immediately started the car and sped off. Neither of them knew what had happened until they were clear of any danger and had a moment to catch their breath. That's when Carl realized he'd been shot in the back of the head. Neither Carl or Rosemary saw their attacker. They were busy. Plus, the attack came from behind the vehicle. 
The investigation, spearheaded by Rosemary's father, turned up 44 caliber bullets lodged in the vehicle. Rosemary Keenan sustained only minor injuries from the explosion of broken glass, and Carl De Niro, though he would survive the shooting, would need a metal plate to replace a large portion of his skull. The Air Force, sadly, was off the table. It would have proven to be a very difficult task to try to connect the Loria Valenti shooting from July with the De Niro Keenan shooting for several reasons. The first is that both were completely lacking any discernible motive. They seemed to be utterly, bafflingly random acts of violence. Then, at the time, a 44 caliber weapon was incredibly popular, and unless they could get relatively intact bullets from the car, which they couldn't, it would be impossible to get a ballistics match. And finally, the attacks occurred in different boroughs and were investigated by different precincts. As a bonus, it would have been even more impressive to make a connection between Donna Loria's long dark hair and Carl De Niro's long dark hair and say, hey, the shooter's probably targeting women with dark hair and they mistook De Niro for a girl. At that point, especially in a liberal city like New York, there were still lots of men with long hair. But if we look at it from the point of view of the shooter, it all makes sense. We'll get to that in a moment. Let's catch up with Dr. Vronsky again. Last episode, we heard his account of New York City in the 1970s, and to be honest, that was a bonus. What I really wanted to talk to him about was his, one might say, obsession that led to his theory about this era that he calls the golden age of serial killers. Yeah, boy, do I, I get trouble for that term, right? Um, you know, and I don't understand why, because that was initially going to be the title of my book. It was going to be American Serial Killers, The Golden Age. You know, my, my publisher, oh, that's, you know, you can't have that. So they settled on the epidemic years, because that's what the FBI called it, the epidemic years. When the paperback edition came out, of course, we were in the middle of COVID. And so now they changed that too. Oh, you know, people are going to get upset. Guys, readers who read about serial killers are not going to get frightened by epidemic. Indeed, it was like an epidemic. Over 80% of all known American serial killers made their appearance in this 30-year period between 1970 and, and 1999. Thousands of serial killers. And now that we've revised the definition of serial killer from used to be, you know, three, we've kind of realized if you kill once and you go away and you come back, you cooled off, you come back and you kill again, excuse me, you're a serial killer. There's no three needed. So once we revised the definition around 2004, um, two or more for any reason, any motive, the number of serial killers now cataloged skyrocketed. When you begin to look at how many people were ready to commit murder, multiple acts of murder, it, it really is an epidemic. And, and that's the way FBI agents testifying before Congress, and of course they want funding, for the behavioral sciences unit at that point. And, and, and so, you know, if you want us to save your children from serial killers, um, give us money. 
it was an epidemic and we did indeed see that surge and we've never really explained it. I've kind of come up with a hypothesis, but I already got my PhD. I, I don't intend to do another one. I'm going to leave it to somebody else to take my hypothesis and actually do the hard work. That, of course, was you got to look at the fathers of the serial killers. You got to look at the average age that a serial killer first perpetrates their murder, and it's around 27, 28. You got to look at when serial killers often begin fantasizing, doing what they're going to do, and often it's as young as five. So you kind of back it up and look at the golden age serial killers, the surge era, epidemic era serial killers. And then you back them up to when they were five and who their fathers were. You're, of course, looking at a generation of fathers coming back from the Second World War. Um, and it, it was not the TV war that or the movie war that was sold to us. You know, that last good war wasn't really all that good. Nor did the veterans coming back from that war have the benefit of a diagnosis that Vietnam veterans had uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Although it took us until the 1980s, certainly veterans from that period had the benefit of at least talking about it. Where World War II veterans, they just came home and nobody wanted to hear it. Nobody wanted to know. And they kind of went through this sullen silence isolated. Often the marriage gets broken down. Um, so I ran across that several times. Other than, of course, you have a general revolt taking place in the 1960s in American society. The youth generation, you have the sexual revolution, you, you have um, kind of emerging um, radical feminism, the, the protest room in the war, uh, the Kennedy assassination, you know, Martin Luther King assassination, Robert Kennedy. You know, these are the 60s as we're approaching the, that period where we have that surge in the 1970s are a period of disorder and everybody's questioning everything and everybody. So, in a way, um, I think serial killers are finding in that era a, a fertile ground in which they can question the value of a human life. Dr. Vronsky's work has been, for the most part, theoretical. He has, however, been working on a project with a convicted serial killer from the Golden Age, which will allow his work, as well as his theory, to be tested in a real-world controlled environment. That is, if you believe what a crazed murderer tells you. Dr. Vronsky's new book will be coming out in 2024. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes. And to that end, as to whether or not law enforcement, or anybody for that matter, can believe anything that a crazed murderer tells you, I spoke with a retired FBI agent with more than 30 years on the job, and he's an OG member of the Behavioral Sciences Unit at the FBI headquarters in Quantico, Virginia. We'll hear from him in a minute. First, let's hop back to December of 1975 and David Berkowitz's mighty fail with his first attempt at murdering innocent young women. His knife attack was repelled, and he was forced to retreat, regroup, and rethink his master plan. He wanted to murder, but he didn't quite know how. Also, he's a grown-up 
out of the military and on his own. He needs to survive, and he eventually lands a job as a letter sorter for the post office in Yonkers and finds a small apartment to call home. All this was covered in the last episode, including the name of his new neighbor, Sam Carr. Let's learn a little bit about Sam Carr, his family, and his black lab named Harvey. Sam Carr lived just down the street from David Berkowitz's apartment building in Yonkers. He had three children. The boys were named John and Michael, and his daughter had the unusual first name of Wheat. It's a name that Sam or his wife must have liked, or maybe it's a family name, because their oldest son, John, also carried Wheat as his middle name. Sam also had a black Labrador retriever named Harvey. In the warmer months, Harvey lived outside in the backyard, and when something caught his attention or startled him, as dogs tend to do, he barked. He barked a lot, in fact. Harvey's incessant barking would lead to someone actually shooting him. Harvey would survive the attack. Sam Carr had a reputation in the neighborhood for being, well, for being an asshole. He was mean, he was dismissive, and according to reports, just an all-around miserable man. He was also rumored to be an extraordinarily strict disciplinarian when it came to raising his boys. Sam's tactics were alleged to have included numerous beatings and lengthy stays of solitary confinement in the attic. David Berkowitz's first introduction to the Carr family was the night he met Michael Carr at a local party. David mentioned that he lived just up the block on Pine Street, and the two became friends. I was uh, lonely. I had no real companionship, and uh, and I was invited to a party one day. I, I went to the party. This was in the Bronx. Uh, a couple of guys said, uh, hey, listen, uh, we, uh, you, you're looking for a girl or something? You're looking for a good, good time? Michael would soon introduce David to his brother John, who, in turn, invited David to a local hangout where a bunch of neighborhood kids often went to relax and get high. Uh, we, we got some uh, friends that meet in the park. So why don't you come by? So I went over to the park and, and uh, we went deep in the woods. This local hangout was on Termeyer Park, just a five-minute drive north from David's apartment. They had a small fire going and, and a lot of people were, were drinking. They were singing. A lot of people were uh, chanting. Untermeyer Park is a sprawling 43-acre property carved out of the late Samuel Untermeyer's 150-acre estate. The park sits on a beautiful piece of land rising from the eastern bank of the Hudson River and features Indo-Persian gardens, a Greek amphitheater flanked by sphinxes resting atop ionic columns, and an open-air temple of the sky. Over the years, the local kids found hidden tunnels and abandoned foundations that were commandeered for beer drinking, weed smoking, and making out. What David didn't know was the actual reason the Carr brothers spent time in Untermeyer Park. And, uh, oh, I said, oh, what's this? You know, I began to meet some of the people and they says, uh, well, you know, we're pagans. We're witches. We just uh, come out here to have a good time. But they were the ones that introduced me to Satanism. We had uh, the circles, we had uh, the pentagrams that they made right there in the woods in the high wheat in the swamp area. And uh, we would just call upon uh, powers, 
call upon these angels that later on I found out that they were really the demons we were calling upon. But I would do these rituals and meditate and uh, you could feel the surge of energy come upon you. You, uh, Things began to change within me. What the Carr brothers didn't know was that they had allowed a madman into their midst. A madman looking for inspiration. Remember, David Berkowitz met the Carr family after the failed stabbing in December of 1975 and before the Loria Valenti shooting in July of 1976. In those seven months, David Berkowitz became organized. He became focused. And he became a relentless hunter. The Loria Valenti shooting in July left Donna Loria dead and Jody Valenti injured. The De Niro Keenan shooting in October left Carl De Niro with a metal plate in his head. What do you think David was doing in the intervening months? He would later confess that he was out driving every night, hunting, looking for victims. But that's not exactly accurate. He wasn't specifically looking for victims. He was waiting, waiting for signs that it was time to kill. And a lot of the kinds of crimes that they were interested in were kind of unknown subject cases. What most people don't realize is that most homicides are easily solved. So if you watch the old movies like Sherlock Holmes and Charlie Chan and all these investigators and all these things, these crimes are always solved because the murderer, as is frequently is the case, is always someone linked to the victim who knows the victim. And that's how they solve the cases. But when you have these individuals who are murdered by a stranger, and sometimes you don't even know the apparent motive, they used to call it murder, no apparent motive. And a lot of those fell into the category of people that were moving around the country and killing multiple people. And sometimes law enforcement didn't realize it was the same person moving to different areas. My name is Ken Lanning. I was an FBI agent for 30 years from 1970 to 2000. And I spent 20 of those years assigned to the FBI Behavioral Science Unit in Quantico, Virginia, that most people know of from uh, movies like Silence of the Lambs and TV shows like Criminal Minds. All right, start looking for spaces. Oh, you're never going to find a space on Jerry's block. Just put it in a garage. Look, I have my system. First, I look for the dream spot right in front of the door, and I slowly expand out in concentric circles. No, come on, George. Please put it in a garage. I don't want to spend an hour looking for a space. Have you ever tried parking in New York City? Or any urban environment, really? It's tough. Trying to get to dinner, friend's place, and there's nothing. So you keep driving around in these ever widening circles, counting the blocks you're going to have to walk just to get back to where you need to be. Maybe you throw out a prayer to the parking gods or you ask the universe for help. Hail Mary, full of grace, help me find a parking space. Never worked. If it got to that point for me, it meant I was going home. I guess the universe doesn't care if I find convenient parking. But now, apply that ritual to David Berkowitz and his hunt for victims. Seriously, only with David it was far more complex. You see, it wasn't just parking that had to manifest. 
several things had to fall into place. First, he had to find just the right victims in just the right scenario. Young people, at least one had to be female, preferably sitting in a car in a residential neighborhood late at night. The woman should have dark hair, and if at all possible, they should be engaged in a makeout session to some degree. So David would drive around, apparently completely aimlessly, save for the residential neighborhood aspect of his prerequisites, and wait. And one of the greatest sources of confusion is using the same word to refer to different things or referring different things by the same word. And so you can have the same raging debate about the term serial killer. So if you're a uh, an assassin for the mafia or organized crime and you kill people, you have contract murders. And so you're told, knock off this guy or knock off that guy. So you wind up killing in your career four, five, six, seven guys. Are you a serial killer? And it all depends on what your definition of a serial killer is, because some people include in the idea that there's a sexual component in the serial killing. There's some kind of sexual gratification. You know, I've talked to enough experts where it's like using a knife and stabbing a woman multiple times is an example of a killer using the knife in place of his penis, basically. And it's hard for us to kind of wrap our our minds around that because we think of sexual violence as, you know, a horrific rape. But these serial killers, you know, whatever gets them off doesn't necessarily always make sense to us. Like, think of this, the gun that he used. I mean, if that is not the most phallic symbol of all time, using a gun and basically shooting your victims, like, well, I guess we won't ever know. But I definitely think, from my personal opinion, there was some kind of sexual component to that. Being a contract murderer is not the same thing as being some guy who gets sexual gratification from killing people and sexually assaulting. So where this becomes more important is you can't count something until you accurately and consistently define it. That's why I loved talking to people who do research, because people who do research know how important it is to have operational definition. Are um, organized crime hitmen? Are they serial killers? You know, I would argue they are indeed. Again, the pathologies are, are similar. Um, and you do have a category of profit-driven, um, we call them material hedonistic serial killers. Dr. Vronsky is one of those research people that Agent Lanning loves so much. And Dr. Vronsky certainly has an affinity for definitions. But he has a different idea about mafia hitmen. And Carolyn favors elements of sexual gratification as a motive for serial killers. Three people from three distinct fields and each with years of training and research under their belts. There are areas where their conclusions will overlap, but there are just as many that won't. Situations like this just serve to underscore how, all these years later, the study of serial killers is still very much an evolving science. Back to Berkowitz, the hunter, and his deliberate, chilling methods of stalking his prey. First, he had to find a young couple in a parked car. That was the first sign. Then the girl had to have long, dark hair. 
That was the second sign. If he could check those boxes, if he actually found potential prey, his heart rate would increase. His senses would become laser-focused, and an adrenaline spike would cause him to catch his breath. Then came the ultimate test. Finding parking in New York City. For the signs to be complete and the murder covenant to be sealed, a parking spot had to miraculously appear. I'm serious. And if it did, Berkowitz was all business. Park. Exit the vehicle. Approach the target. Draw his weapon. Aim and fire. He would then retreat to his vehicle and calmly drive home before anyone was the wiser. One of the things you have to understand is a lot of times you talk about the golden age of serial killers. That one of the big problems with serial killers is even realizing that somebody is a serial killer. Because some people don't realize how fragmented American law enforcement is. Uh, most police departments have a smaller police departments that maybe have 10 police officers. And so you have local police, county police, state police, federal law enforcement, and so on. And so a lot of times, just by moving around, matter of fact, one of the things that the Behavioral Science Unit got involved with is working with homicide detectives and, and creating something called VICAP. And one of the things about this VICAP that was created is to see if we could improve linking these cases together. So instead of believing that we had 20 separate murders that recurred around and these people in these various jurisdictions had no idea of the others, trying to link them together and come to the realization that you did have a serial killer. Although Carl De Niro and Rosemary Keenan never even caught a glimpse of the man who attacked them, Jody Valenti the survivor of the attack that claimed the life of Donna Loria, did. She described the assailant as a white male, about 5 feet 8 inches tall, 200 pounds, with dark curly hair in the mod style that was popular at the time. That's an incredibly accurate description that, unfortunately, over the next 12 months, would become confused with more than five additional eyewitness accounts that were considerably less accurate. So far, progress has not been encouraging. Uh, the witnesses so far have been very scant and there were very uh, poor descriptions or, in most cases, no witnesses. During the past year, police have been working with five sketches, all different somehow. Police describe the killer as clean-shaven, with dark, wavy hair, high cheekbones, and a sensuous mouth. Ever wonder what a 30-year veteran of the FBI thinks about eyewitness testimony? Here's more from Ken Lanning. When I began in the FBI, one of the primary things that the FBI responded to was bank robberies. So all of a sudden they would say, hold up alarm sounding at the ABC bank at 4th and Main. And then the agents would report there and you'd go in and you'd be given different assignments. So one of the assignments was to interview the tellers. So here's a guy walked into the bank with a gun. Maybe he didn't even have a mask on. He says, okay, put the money in this bag or take your money, put it in the bag. And then you'd interview three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten employees, tellers, other people in the bank. And sometimes they couldn't even agree on what race he was. He was tall, he was short, he was black, he was white, and so on. So eyewitness testimony is notoriously inaccurate due to many factors. And a lot depends on leading and suggestibility. A lot depends on stress. And there's many reasons why this testimony that they provide can be inaccurate. But because people don't describe the offender the same way, 
doesn't mean it's different offenders. <laughs> so you have to be careful of eyewitness testimony. I'm not saying we did it. We always interviewed the tellers and you tried to get information. And sometimes you try to come up with something that was like a totality of what they all told you and try to make some estimations about what aspects of it might be more accurate than others. Both the description of the attacker and Berkowitz's M.O. of looking for signs would be corroborated by the victim's father, who described a man of similar appearance in a yellow car that had been circling the neighborhood for hours. Circling for hours. The patience of a hunter. That patience, though, it would seem, wasn't always dependable. And here's why. From December 1975 to July of 1976, that's seven months he supposedly drove around waiting for the right circumstances to fall out of the sky. And they did. Now he had the taste for murder. He had accomplished his first task, as ordered by his master, and was hungry for more. Three months went by. Three months of aimless driving, alone, in breathless anticipation of when the next time the signs would align and he could get down to business. And it took him far from home, all the way to Queens for the dinero attack. But there was no body count that time. They had survived. He failed. Maybe he lost faith in the process. Maybe his bloodlust was too strong. Maybe he misread one of the signs. Whatever the reason, David abandoned his normal routine, and it nearly cost him everything. Just one month after the De Niro shooting, David was hunting in the Floral Park neighborhood of Queens when he went off script. It was late on the evening of Saturday, November 27, 1976. High school students and best friends Donna DeMassi and Joanne Lamino had just walked home from seeing a late screening of the horror film Carrie and were sitting on the front stoop of Joanne's home when a man wearing military fatigues approached them. This man stopped in front of the girls and began to ask directions, but he never finished his question. Instead, halfway through his sentence, he drew a revolver and fired two shots at each girl before running away. A witness recalls hearing a man speaking in a strange, high-pitched voice, and then, after the shots, saw that man running away. But, and this would throw law enforcement off the scent for weeks, the man fleeing the scene was described as having blonde hair. Donna DeMassey was shot in the neck. Her wounds weren't serious, and she made a full recovery. Joanne Lamino was shot in the back, and though she survived, she became a paraplegic. So, for a man on a mission, bent on killing in the name of a mysterious force that was seemingly pulling all the strings in his life, this was two failures in a row. Yes, there were major injuries, but no sacrifices for his master. David needed to get back to basics, get back to hunting. The holiday season of 1976 passed as a lonely, isolated time for David Berkowitz. Working in the post office by day and trolling the city by night, waiting for a sign that it was once again time to kill. But it was in his downtime, which he admittedly kept to a minimum, that the truth of his motivations came out. 
either coincidentally or through the manifestations of a diseased mind. David's arrival at 35 Pine Street in Yonkers and his friendship with the Carr brothers facilitated his acquaintance with the powerful force that David claimed would be the prime mover when it came to his reign of terror. A demonic being, more than 6,000 years old, that would communicate with David through the most unlikely of conduits. The Carr family dog, the excitable black lab named Harvey. Through Harvey, the ancient demon that controlled David's neighbor, the evil Sam Carr, would command him to hunt and look for signs, all in the ghastly efforts to, as Sam allegedly put it, gather the blood of pretty young girls. So Sam Carr was actually the 6,000-year-old demon, and he would use his dog as a conduit to communicate with David Berkowitz. And according to David, it would happen so often that it would drive him crazy. To everyone else, of course, it just sounded like the dog was barking a lot. But David was able to hear the truth. What everyone else heard as incessant barking were actually commands to kill. David wanted to get out from under the control of Sam so badly that it was David who shot Harvey in April of 1977. But through the power of Satan, the dog was able to survive and continue to exert his power over a hopeless, helpless David Berkowitz. I was uh, chanting the names of Lucifer over and over, and I was calling out to him. I says, uh, I says, uh, you know, some of the morning, and, uh, and uh, Prince, my Prince, my Lord, you know, uh, come into uh, come into me right now. Take control of this vessel, and uh, and I felt like I was being emptied of my own personality. That something else somehow was coming in. So as the calendar turned to 1977, conditions in the city didn't improve. They got worse. There was still the overwhelming sense of poverty and decay, of crime and despair. The winter of 77 was wickedly cold, colder than usual, and our hunter generally found the streets empty. It was just too cold to sit in a car for any longer than a few minutes without keeping the engine running. And one thing drivers of the 70s were aware of was the 1973 Arab oil embargo, which caused gas prices to quadruple. Conserving fuel was still a baked-in necessity in 1977. For two frigid months, David roamed the streets of Queens, searching, hunting, hoping to satisfy the beast that seemed insatiable. And then the signs began. On the morning of January 30th, 1977, as upstate New York was being pounded by a blizzard that would dump almost 10 feet of snow across the region in three days, David Berkowitz again braved the winter cold and found himself in the Forest Hills neighborhood of Queens, an upscale residential enclave just south of Flushing. David, with his trained eye, saw the telltale signs. Like a tracker in the woods recognizes a broken branch or notices some disruption in the underbrush. From a block away, David saw the exhaust from a tailpipe, freezing in the frigid January air. Someone was sitting in a car with the engine running, trying to stay warm. 
he made his first pass of the idling vehicle. Jackpot. John Deal and Christine Freund had just seen the movie Rocky, the future Best Picture winner that launched the career of megastar Sylvester Stallone. Following dinner at a popular restaurant, The Wine Cellar, on Austin Street in Forest Hills. The recently engaged couple were planning on continuing the evening at a dance club. John was a bartender, and Christine worked as a secretary on Wall Street. They were sitting in John's Pontiac Firebird, waiting for the car to heat up. The temperatures had dropped to well below freezing. Little did they know that they were in the crosshairs of a monster. Less than a block away, the terrifying cosmic tumblers that were the product of the warped psyche of David Berkowitz clicked into place. Master Sam had provided a parking spot. The signs were all there. It was time. David got out of his car and slid his revolver into his jacket pocket. He walked quickly, but not too quickly. Just enough to make it seem like he was trying to stay warm in case anybody was watching. In reality, he was running hot with adrenaline and anticipation, sweating even. He approached the Firebird from the sidewalk on the passenger side, pulled his weapon, and fired four shots through the glass. In a controlled retreat, he replaced the gun in his pocket, circled back to his car, and headed home to Yonkers. Meanwhile, in the Firebird, all hell broke loose. We can imagine the couple huddled in front of the air vents, awaiting the first breath of warmth radiating off the engine, rubbing their hands together as the Partridge family classic I Think I Love You played on the radio. Then, booming thunder and shattered glass pierced the night, and the next thing John realized was that his fiancée was unconscious, bleeding, and slumped over onto his shoulder. He got out of the car and screamed for help, but none came. The street was empty. John got back in his car and drove about 100 yards to the nearest intersection and parked directly in the middle. One thing New Yorkers hate is someone blocking the box and causing traffic. And sure enough, this got the proper attention and a good Samaritan called the police who arrived on scene within minutes. Mr. Deal was unharmed, but Christine Freund would die a few hours later at a local hospital. The next day, the New York Times would run a headline exclaiming, Woman Dies in Mystery Shooting. But behind the scenes, law enforcement was finally making connections. This recent attack yielded the same 44 caliber bullets fired from the same type of weapon. The assailant targeted people sitting in a parked car, and the female victim had long dark hair. It was enough for Queensborough District Attorney John Santucci to make the first preliminary overture that the city of New York might have a serial killer in their midst. Quote, We are checking into the possibility that cases with similar circumstances in this borough and other boroughs over the past year or so, and whether there are any connections between these possibly similar cases and this one. Yeah, he hedged a lot. And the reaction to that statement shows why. 
the city hadn't quite arrived at panic. But it wouldn't take much. On the next episode of The Devil Within, A Season in Hell, New York City Mayor Abraham Beam announces that a connection has been made between the recent string of attacks and the unknown assailant gets a nickname from the press. Then we delve into the psyche of David Berkowitz and how he might have been influenced by elements of pop culture. That's next time on The Devil Within. The Devil Within, A Season in Hell is a Cloud 10 Media production recorded live at Bel Air Studios in Los Angeles, California. Written and produced by Brandon Morgan. Executive produced by Sim Sarni. Our post-production supervisor is Bruce Whitkin, who also provided original music for this episode. For The Devil Within, I'm your host, Brandon Morgan. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.